to the book of Ephesians. I want to read some of the most familiar verses in this little epistle. Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 1. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. We'll end our reading in verse 7 and trust again the Lord to bless the public reading of His Word. Let's bow together as we come to consider this tonight. Our Heavenly Father, We've been privileged tonight again to come corporately into Your presence with singing and praise to a God, to a Savior who is worthy of our praise. And as we come tonight around this table, we ask that You might minister grace to us still. We have sung affirm together that there is no saving merit. There is no spiritual work, as it were, atoning work being done at this place. There's no priestcraft in changing elements into the actual body and blood of Jesus. There is no ongoing sacrifice for sins. Our Savior cried, it is finished. What more needs to be said? But we do pray that we might be set apart in our thoughts. We might be reminded of the power of the Gospel. That phrase we've read repeatedly in recent weeks. Paul wasn't ashamed of the Gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Lord, as we gather tonight, a company of believers, we pray that something of that gospel power will again capture our affections. And so we pray that you'll be near to us in our meditations around the Word, in our meditations and our prayers surrounding the elements themselves. Be pleased to draw near. We ask these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. I told you as we started our study in Romans 
that best we can determine the time of the writing of Romans was not very long after the Apostle Paul's two and a half to three years that he spent in Ephesus. It's my own personal, I guess, meditation, you might say, when you think of those afternoon lectures in the school of Tyrannus, whether that was really his name or a nickname from his students, commentators will never decide. But in those afternoon hours where others were in there, were they siestas in Ephesus? I don't think so, but something similar. Paul is teaching. He's preaching the gospel. You see how that church at Ephesus became a mother church of those churches in Asia Minor and the churches we read of in the closing book of the Bible. And as Paul left Ephesus and began his journey working his way to see a couple of the churches, but en route to Jerusalem, it's then that he penned that epistle to the Romans. So much of what he must have been saying in those afternoon lectures, the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he, he put pen to paper and wrote to the Romans and to us. And while we're not reading in Romans tonight, these familiar verses we've read in Ephesians very much teach us the same thing that we looked at in our text this morning, Romans 1.18, and really the rest of that section up till the 20th verse of chapter 3. Children of wrath, even as others. And do you notice here, sometimes I think we just can kind of blow right by it in our reading. But if you look in verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, we're in time past, ye walked. And you see the little catalog of the description of their sin and their depravity. But then in verse 3, and really through the remainder of these verses we read, Paul just weaves in and out between you and we. Here's the Pharisee of the Pharisees. Here's a man who by any external standard, any moral catalog, if you will, was blameless. Among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature Children of wrath. Paul includes himself. Paul understands now the gracious intervention of God. He understands now those Old Testament scriptures he had committed to head knowledge. He knows Christ. And if you look in those two words that open verse 4, Everything in these opening three verses is what he's going to expound in Romans 1-3. to Sin. Depravity. Pushing truth aside. Going into the depths of sin. And everything we see with regard to God's law, and can we say it this way, God's obligations toward us, would lead to the conclusion, these children of wrath, it's a Hebraism. It's like sons of Belial or children of disobedience we read earlier. Disobedience so characterizes us that we're called just 
children, sons of disobedience. Wrath so attaches to us. Children of wrath, even as others. And it would seem that that's what we must receive. That that's what we must forever endure. I want to beg your patience this evening. I've mentioned this before, but well, I want to give it to you from the horse's mouth. There are a couple of paragraphs. They're paragraphs by old writers, so they're... But this is Hugh Martin's wonderful little volume on the atonement. Good luck finding at least one of these. But I've mentioned this in the past. There's a portion here where Martin begins to deal with the sovereignty of God. You see him thinking of that phrase, but God. And I remember reading this many years ago when he began to introduce the thought of God's sovereignty being of such a nature that he exercises his sovereignty in a sphere that is above his law. Well, that got my attention. Because I grew up in dispensational circles where the teaching was that God's law changed from age to age. And even as a little guy, how can something be wrong in the Old Testament and not still wrong in the New Testament? Or how can something be okay in the Old Testament? That's the direction it usually goes. And not okay in the New Testament. I came to learn of the immutability of God's law. It cannot be changed. It's based upon His own character. It can't be altered or He won't be just. How can God's sovereignty be exercised above His law? The making of Christ to be sin is a transaction of high state and sovereignty. It is a very singular event in the divine government. It could originate with, it could be designed, proposed, carried out by none but the divine moral governor himself, and by him acting only in his prerogative as the absolute sovereign of the universe. And it affords scope for exercising and glorifying his sovereignty as no other transaction in all the eternal history of his government can afford. For it illustrates the singular freedom, the high range and all-embracing sweep of his sheer sovereign will unto the uttermost. It proves that God's sovereignty is free and a freedom which could not have been conceived and has full scope and play in circumstances in which it could not have been believed to be applied. For God's holy law is absolute and unconditional and unchangeable. Martin won me back with that sentence. (laughs) No possible circumstances can set limits to its action. For its very claim is to rule all circumstances whatsoever. And save for sin and salvation, the holy universe must have forever believed that God's sovereign pleasure also was ruled and condemned by His unconditional and everlasting law. It must have forever appeared impossible 
that God's will could act otherwise in all matters ethical and judicial, and that His unchangeable law should rule. Hence, when sin entered, and death by sin, the sovereign God must have appeared to all His intelligent and righteous creatures as shut up to inflict death on all that sinned. The sphere of sovereignty must have appeared limited by the sphere of law. Let's set Martin aside for a moment and we come back to another paragraph. But you see, that's what we read in these opening three verses. There is a law that cannot be changed. There's a law that defines righteousness. It defines what is right and what is wrong. It is a law that promised life. Theologians, and particularly in the last couple generations, debate and haven't even abandoned that. But Paul so clearly taught it. He looked at the law and even spoke of it as that which was ordained unto life. He found to be unto death because he was a transgressor. And that original covenant that promised life for obedience promised death for disobedience. There's the penalty. Failure to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and failure to love our neighbors ourselves. Well, ponder that in your theological meditations. Even in those first words to Adam and Eve with regard to the tree of knowledge and to the tree of life. We see both tables of the law so plainly. How can Adam love his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and disregard what his God has told him? How can Adam love us when all of us are in him and he takes the race with him to the forbidden tree? Adam was a lawbreaker. And whereas by one man sin entered and death by sin. Children of wrath. It would seem we should be locked up to experiencing that wrath forever. But we read verse 4. But But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins. And actually, if you look in verse 5 and 6, it's the first time verbs appear. Paul's talked a long time. No verbs yet. You see, verse 1 that we so rightly memorize, and I think our translators have aptly supplied a verb. We're kind of looking for one. But the verb, you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, well, hath he quickened, italicized. They bring it forward from verse 4 to 
kind of make it a real sentence for English readers. But the three verbs that just rapid fire. Some believe that at least in one of these cases, Paul made the word up. He added the, the prefix that means with. He has quickened us together with Christ. He's raised us up together and made us sit together. All in Christ. This is the divine initiative. This is the divine activity. This is the divine provision for those who were children of His wrath. But you see, He brought alongside Wrath that was rightly set upon us is rich mercy, his great love, his grace. And we read those words, but God. Can I read on then in Hugh Martin? The last words I read, it said here that it would seem, it must have appeared to all his intelligent and righteous creatures that God has shut up to inflict death on all that sinned. The sphere of sovereignty must have appeared limited by the sphere of law. But I read on. But God designed to show his sovereignty to be absolutely unlimited Not indeed in a way that violated law or set law aside, but of transcending law. Not as against law, but above law. Not as merely free within the sphere of law, but free in a sphere comprehending law and rising about it. Compassing law about on every side with glory and rising far above law into a realm of higher freedom still. The sovereign Lord is not shut up to the course which law prescribes. Death eternal to the sinner. The freedom of His sovereignty, the counsel of His will, the sphere of His good pleasure takes a larger range. He is not shut up to His course of procedure, even by His own holy law. He cannot indeed proceed in violation of His law, For it is the very transcript of his own holy nature and he cannot himself deny it. But his nature, while it defines his law, does not hamper him in his will. Honoring his law and acting ever in accordance with his nature and perfections, his will goeth forth in most free, unconditioned, and absolute sovereignty. And in the action of His sovereignty, in its most free and glorious forthgoing, He makes Christ to be sin for us. No law required this. No law suggested this. No law objects to this. Against this, there is law. We are sinners. Perhaps we ourselves 
can entertain faults, blasphemous thoughts of our God. Somehow, seeing wrath, law, was harsh. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, hath raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We were blind captives. We were, as Paul includes himself, lustful participants in all the indulgences of the flesh, if not in every action, the inclinations of our will. We were children of wrath. Deservedly so. But our sovereign God, honoring His law, honoring Himself, found a means of removing His wrath from us justly and placing it upon Jesus. We come tonight to a very familiar practice. Some of us from our earliest years have been seated in services. I don't know why there's a particular communion service. I remember the seat I was in, in a building that no longer exists. Familiar exercise, if you will. Let us remember tonight our Lord, the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and asked his disciples going forward to use these emblems to remember him. To remember that he bore the wrath to set us free. Let us not with routine Take. Let us by faith, let us with gospel hearts remember tonight God, who appeared to be shut up to consigning us to eternal hell, instead sovereignly found a way to bring us to his presence forever. Let us remember Jesus tonight. Let me ask you to take, if you would, our...